Lisa Simpson has been a gift in every way. I really, really love that girl. I love her like she is a three-dimensional, living, breathing, little eight-year-old that is full of red blood like the rest of us. Hello, everybody. Welcome to At Home with us, Linda and Drew Scott. And this is a show where we chat with artists, experts, dreamers, and doers about the good that they're creating in the world. Through these conversations, we learn about relationships with ourselves, our communities, and our planet. We go beyond design and explore what home is all about. Home is a feeling. Just like David Hasselhoff said in his song, home is a feeling. Okay. No? (laughs) Oh, no, that's hooked on a feeling. Never mind. Anyway, all of these conversations in some way or another make us feel right at home. This is At Home. Well, it is hot. It is hot. And Drew's not wearing any clothes in the podcast room. There's no problem with recording. I'm wearing my bathing suit. Well, actually, I'm wearing my bathing suit, but it's so small that you can't see it. (laughs) But it looks (laughs) like from where I'm sitting, it looks like he's fully naked because the the Mm armrest of the chair is covering his goods. My vitals. (laughs) This is, Linda will post the picture. Uh, it's, it is too hot to be wearing clothes in the studio space here. It's a little hot, but it's very scary how hot it's getting actually, but we are going to get out to the pool and that's going to cool everything out. That's going to cool everything off. That cool everything out. Cool it out. Oh, ha, ha, ha. That means Ding. I can Ding. hear when Ding. I'm expecting. Yeah, I should, yeah, have, I, sh- I should have anyway. turned it off. Sorry. All right, Sorry, that's my right. bad. All that aside, we are super excited. Today we're speaking with Emmy Award winning actress, novelist, and playwright. She's appeared on television, film, Broadway, your, everything. Your voice was like on television. It was getting like very- I like, was trying to do the movie voice guy as I got to that part. <laughs> I, on I, television. On t- oh gosh. Anyway, it's Yardley Smith. Yay! Yay! Best known as the iconic voice of Lisa Simpson on The Simpsons. I feel like I- <laughs> don't really need to say well, that. Well, you, you kind of don't. <laughs> However, they do have a record-breaking 30-second season now. Like, that's crazy to think. I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons when I was a kid, but it's been around that long. We we have to talk about that. Um. <laughs> well, we'll get into that later on. But Yardley also hosts and produces an amazing podcast. It's a hit true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. And she's co-founded and runs the Paperclip Limited production company. Okay, about Small Town Dicks, you all have to listen because it is such... A cool crime podcast, like they like really get into it. Yeah, they dig into um, and some if you love stories. true crime, then you are going to love this one. I also love that Yardley and her production company are committed to sourcing projects that feature roles for those who are usually underrepresented on the screen. And gosh, there's nothing she can't do. She also has a cooking show on YouTube. Catch it on IG as well, called Oil and Water. It's super playful. And instructional and funny. She knows her stuff when it comes to (laughs) cooking. Before we jump into the chat, please note that this episode contains cursing as well as discussions about eating disorders that may be triggering to some listeners. So please check out the show notes for more detailed description and some great resources. And please take care. This is Yardley Smith. Okay, if ADT wasn't professional enough, now ADT installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. I mean, what are they going to do next? They're going to start a country singing career. I would listen to a country band named ADT. Also, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with my Google Nest doorbell. Just saying. Your Google Nest doorbell? I said our. He said my. Everybody check that. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to control my ADT smart devices, like my lights, my locks. <laughs> my security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. And I like to say, hey, Google, to get started. Listen, I said ours. I'm all about ours, not mine. <laughs> Help protect what matters most with all this, plus 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. What was life like for you as a kid? Um, I was, I, I'm a terrible worrier now. And I was, uh, I was actually a, a big worrier when I was little. Um, which is funny because I was like my brother, not really a worrier. I have a brother is a year older than me. And my friends who have kids 
they always say that children come, their kids came out already baked, right? And then you sort of help them along and, and hopefully instill some values in them and give them opportunities and stuff. But the ones who were shy, they showed up shy. The ones who were totally extroverted, totally extroverted. So um, I was that, I was quite shy. Um, and my, I grew up in a, a, I would say a pretty formal household. Mm. And so um, it was, my parents are highly educated. My father was a journalist for the Washington Post. My mother worked for one of the Smithsonian museums as a paper conservator, which is a, somebody who repairs books and pictures for exhibits. Oh, cool. And so they were, yeah, madly intellectual. And then there's me. I didn't even get into college. So woo, woo, woo. <laughs> um, <laughs> who needs it? <laughs> who needs it, Lisa? Um, and I mean, Linda, I'm so sorry. And so I. Uh, uh, that's fine. I You can call me Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I'm actually looking at a cell of Lisa Simpson. I'm surrounded by cells, obviously, of the show. And I'm, please forgive me, I did have a mini brain fart right there. Um, <laughs> you know, we were. I mean, they're obviously they loved us and we wanted for nothing, but there were, there were things that were just not done and appearances were important and um, ambition was important. Although I, I don't think that they were thrilled when I announced at the age of six that I wanted to be an actress. I think they were like, Oh God, surely yeah. that's a phase. Surely that will pass. Do you, um, do you mean like, um, when you mentioned things that weren't done, do you mean because the appearances were important and they were highly intellectual and you were, you know, you were shy, did they not notice or did you always have to be forced into situations you were not comfortable in because you were shy or? Um, yeah, just that's talk a more good about question, that. actually. I, I do remember there was an annual New Year's Day party that my parents uh, um, always took us to, friends of theirs, obviously. And I was so shy. I never wanted to go downstairs to the playroom in the basement with the other kids. First of all, they were so rambunctious and a couple of them were kind of bullies. And so I would cling to my mother's skirt and she was always like, get, go, go, you have to go, you know, and you would be, um, I think she, I'm sure she thought she, like, I'm, I'm encouraging this socialization skill that will really serve you well in life. But at the time it felt um, pretty scary. Um, and I just, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of emotion, although I was a very emotional child. Mm. I don't think that was particularly easy for my parents. At the same time, my mother gave my brother and I every opportunity. We, mm -hmm. She insisted that she expose us to all sorts of uh, arts, and um, she would read to us every night. Um, we were told we had to try everything once. She was a very good cook, so we had a pretty diverse palate. And if you didn't like it, then I guess you'll be hungry. <laughs> so we we were we were pretty good about that. Uh, we never ate out, really, hardly at all. There were sort of two, one restaurant that we would go to in D.C. once a year. And then once in a while, when my father was riding horses, my brother and I also rode for a while. I didn't care for it. I was so small. The horse, I don't even think the horse even knew I was on his oh. back. Like, sorry. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to stop for grass. And then I'd roll off the neck, you know? Um, and on the way home, we would either get to go to McDonald's or Pizza Hut. And that was a big mm -hmm. deal. So with, with um, you're saying that's sort of an idea that, you know, kids are, they're already baked and then you're just adding the, the, the sprinkles on top or whatever it might be um, over light uh, through life. And as you grow up, so you didn't have that emotional attention from your parents. Did that affect you as you're as you were getting older? You know, you're in an industry. You mentioned it was important to your family. Appearance was important, but then you get into an industry where, for a lot of people, it's all about appearance. So, how did that affect you? Uh, terribly, actually. I had an eating disorder for 25 years. Oh, wow. I was bulimic from the time I was 14 until I was 39, and I remember. Uh, and I, meanwhile, I had, I, I got into therapy when I was in my twenties and I really, really liked it as a place for me. It was a great place 
to offload whatever noise was in my head with someone who didn't necessarily have an attachment to the outcome, but could uh, lend an outside, again, kind of unfettered perspective. And that was Mm -hmm. really, really useful to me. And I was... Uh, I was hyper-independent. I I suffered desperately from perfectionism. So for any young listeners, all I can tell you is it is a zero-sum game. You will not win that fight. You will miss so many things along the way. Um, I believe in setting the bar high and touching the bar. But if you set the bar so high that you never touch it, then you never get to reap the benefits of the tremendous amount of effort that you've put into mm. any particular goal that you've set for yourself. So, mm-hmm. um, and in our, in my business, and you know, in show business, first of all, appearance oftentimes is more highly valued than um, say talent, the thing that mm. is operating on the inside and rejection is a huge part of being an actor. And I have been enormously lucky. But what's funny is people are like, oh my God, it was so easy for you. You just, you never heard about all the stuff that I didn't get. Mm. All you heard about was the stuff that I did get, in particular, this one phenomenal job called The Simpsons, right? Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know how, and I don't believe that you necessarily should prepare for an audition halfway just sort of go in and half-ass it and say, well, and then not get it and go like, well, that's too bad. Yeah. Everything that I was up for, I threw myself into 100%. And so when I didn't get it, um, it was, I was devastated every time. And so that was enormously difficult. As an actor who is doing both voice acting as well as uh, TV and film, was there a reason why you shifted one way or the other, or do you still prefer the the diversity to to do both on screen as well as voice work? I really love the diversity. I, I, I started my career on stage. And so that's really my first love. I love that you kind of get on the train and the train bolts out of the station and you can't get off until you get to the other side. Um, There's a real fly by the seat of your pants, adrenaline rush in having to live so precisely in the moment for however long that play is going on. There's also something about on stage, obviously, if you're in the audience, the audience can see the whole stage all the time. And there's this exchange of energy. So whereas in a film, you really can craft a performance with editing. So, and they only show you what they want you to see in that particular uh, scene or in that moment. So um, stage, I feel like is an art unto itself. And voiceover came about, I never wanted to do voiceover. I had plans for world domination for as long as I can remember. And voiceover wasn't part of it. And I think because I was teased so mercilessly as a kid for having of this funny, nasally voice, right? I've always sounded like this. And then Lisa Simpson is not that far away. She's just <laughs> right up there. Mm. So I don't think I ever thought that my voice could be an asset. So how did you overcome the insecurity of your voice and then the insecurity of your own body image and your and your journey with bulimia. What was that moment like when, I'm sure it wasn't instantaneous, but can you tell us about how you overcame that? I think by the time I became a professional actress, which was when I was 17, was really when, so I hadn't gotten into college and I was like, well, I'm just going to go to work. And I got a job right out of high school, which was amazing. And I got these great reviews in the Washington Post and the Washington Star at the time. Um, And it was a huge launch for me. And and things really fell into place for about 13 or 14 years after that. And then there was a great and a tremendous slowdown, which was uh, unexpected and it's a whole other, uh, a whole other story. And it really, I will just say, I so much attached my identity to what I do that when I was no longer able to do it at the level that I had been doing it for the last 12, 13 years, mm. now I had a massive identity crisis. Mm. So, but when I got the Simpsons, which was in on the Tracy Ullman show in 87, 87, um, I don't think I was self-conscious about my voice because I already, for reasons, uh, blessings, I would say, I had tremendous confidence in my ability to deliver 
the heart and mind of this character. Mm-hmm. Even as narrow as her scope was when we were doing those little bumpers on the Tracy Ullman show. So that wasn't so much a problem. And I think I was pretty quick to realize you guys all thought I had a, f- a funny, stupid voice when I was in grade school, but who has the last laugh now? So I was just going to say that. Like, <laughs> Did you go back to those kids as a 17-year-old and say, suck it? <laughs> you know, no need. I feel like it. <laughs> I just feel like, <laughs> luckily, it. right, we're on five times a day, so... Yeah. That's yeah. all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. And then in terms of the bulimia, I remember being 39 and I've been in therapy a long time. And the thing about eating disorders, many things, obviously, is that it's very private ritual. There's a lot of shame around it. Um, I always would binge and purge in private, obviously. Very few people knew about it. I would even lie by omission to my therapists. And I got to 39 and I realized, oh my God, I can't, I don't want to turn 40 and still be doing this. And I obviously can't do it on my own. No matter how many times I would say, okay, I won't do it anymore. And then maybe there would be an ebb in the binging and purging, but then something would happen, some stressor would occur and I would get back into it. Because bulimia for me was a, certainly a way, it was like a, um, an equalizing force. You know, you, you would sort of numb me out and then I would, I would have a, a break from whatever the worry, the concern, the anxiety was. And so I finally, on the advice of my therapist, enrolled myself in an outpatient program at UCLA for eating disorders. We met eight hours a week it was two four-hour sessions a week. And during that those sessions, you also had to eat. You had to have a meal, right? You had to bring your own food and eat in front of people, which, of course, for anybody with an eating disorder, whether it's anorexia or bulimia or whatever the, um, mm-hmm. whatever the affliction is, is harrowing. It is, it is because eating now, has, it's, so, it's so distorted and it's such a private ritual, all of it, even eating normally. Um, Mm -hmm. It was hard. And the other thing that was hard for me was you had to make a goal every week. It had to be a social goal because again, people with eating disorders are often very reloners Mm -hmm. um, at, at times anyway. And so I had to make a social goal every week, which was almost harder than saying, okay, here's what I'm going to do there's here are the tools in my toolbox not to binge and purge this week but one of the things that came out of it was one of the it was all women in that group at that time mm-hmm. they're all different ages um it wasn't that men weren't allowed they just didn't happen to be in that group when i was there for 13 months oh, wow. and uh one girl said i'm gonna go take a knitting class who wants to come and i was like i'll do it <laughs> i'll go and um, so I went because I had to tick this thing off my list, right? Yeah, yeah. And I learned to knit and I still knit and I'm quite a good knitter and she didn't take to it, but I loved it. So that was that was a plus. That's so cool. I mean, I, I do need a new pair of knit socks. My um, old pair is gone. Okay, I just want to say I'm not a fast knitter, but I'm a very okay. good knitter. Um, I think maybe what we need to do is uh, put the next few seasons of the show on hold just while you work on a full <laughs> suit for me because I'm pretty a tall. It's, yeah, I need a knit onesie. <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah, there is something so satisfying about it because you see, I've only knit like a coaster. <laughs> That's the furthest I've gotten. It's so good. It's so I mean, satisfying. it all counts. And I think for me, being obsessed with productivity, one, I find knitting meditative, but also yeah. at the end of it, I have something like, yeah. oh, look, I made a thing. I still feel productive without sort of really going overboard as I can yeah. be wont to do. So. so you have this launch of your career with The Simpsons. Um, all these other opportunities are opening up for you. Did you find with every new project you took on or as your career ebb and flowed over the years, over the decades, have you found that a lot of the different uh, projects you've tackled, have they all really been independent or have you had some sort of a through line that is that was sort of weaving your life path between each project? It was bringing out something new or you were evolving? Uh 
That is a, an extraordinary question. It's a really great question. I, I think I'm late to the party in terms of finding a through line. And part of that was, I believe, is because I really had trouble staying present in the moment. I was always completely obsessed with what is not yet done. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that you then, you know, I would get a job. And for me, the thrill of it was getting the job, almost not even doing the job. And so, but the downside of that is, is that then you'll probably miss all the great, fun, little nuances that you can gather if you're present for any experience. Mm-hmm. And so two things sort of happened was I would forget, like I wouldn't remember what it felt like to do that job. And I, and, and therefore, and because I was so obsessed with what was not yet done, I couldn't, I couldn't really get an aggregate of my experiences. I would, I rarely got a pat on the back, um, either from my family or myself. And it took me years and years, probably until about, I'm 56, so at least until I was in my mid-30s to sort of slow that down and realize, oh, this is what's happening. Mm. I need to really stay in the moment and not worry about what comes next. Why don't I just try to be present for what's happening today? I've also learned that to sort of, to be much more nimble, you know, as the business changed, it took me a long time to change with it. And that was not... Um, not my best move. And so anyway, uh, but to your point, I always get in the casting breakdown and says, you know, frumpy, tired, grumpy woman behind the desk. I'm like, excuse me, excuse me. I mean, I have a wardrobe that is to die for. And I feel like whenever I leave the house, even just to go to the market, I try to put myself together. I'm like, and I do actually think that's sort of just to counterbalance all of these horrible descriptions that I'm always going in to read for. So um, I get it. You would think that the casting people would maybe change it a little bit just to like help your ego and then maybe put it back to what they they need. I think, more recently, they have had to, right, it, um, to combat like certain stereotypes and and also like inappropriate slurs. I think writers have had to adjust, you know, the descriptors of characters. I, I mean, uh, I think I heard maybe. that recently, but um, I hope so because really, yeah. after you do that for forty years, and you're like, okay, yeah, <laughs> all right. Well, Sub- so, subconsciously, you, you, it, it can sort of like reinforce certain yeah, emotional states. Yeah, that's so interesting, especially if you're the type of person who invests your heart and soul into every single project or role you're going for. So it's easy to see how you can attach yourself to an identity that someone else has written for you, even mm. though they don't know you. Um, So when you're talking about your bulimia and your, your, um, I guess you're coming into your, yourself all this time, the Simpsons, you, you had the Simpsons, right? Um, and the Simpsons family at the time was such a unique portrayal of the American family. You know, they're out in the open. You talk about how they make mistakes out in the open. It's not that they're amoral, you know, right. they have morals, they just make mistakes and they're public about it and we get to watch it. Did that impact you in any way? Like, did they teach you anything in your personal life? Um, I feel like I, I actually got a lot of um, emotional catharsis, I have and still do, from working on that show. And in particular, obviously playing Lisa Simpson, I feel like I learned, Lisa Simpson is one of the most compassionate, resilient, funny, brave, um, humble, really perfectly flawed characters ever created, I think for the big screen or the small. And through her journeys, every episode, the joke is every episode, they give Lisa Simpson something and by 22 minutes later, when the show is over, they've taken it away. Whether that be a pony, um, an achievement, a friend, you name it, Lisa Simpson has been through it and multiple Mm -hmm. times. And so I really, to play that part, it can't not 
live inside of you in the same way that those um, pejorative casting descriptions ultimately will find a way to live inside of you. Mm. Lisa Simpson has been a gift in every way. I really, really love that girl. I love her like she is a three-dimensional, living, breathing, little eight-year-old that is full of red blood like the rest of us. I, I, I just love The Simpsons because of the fact that it's not this cookie-cutter dynamic with the family. And in reality, you know, uh, a lot of people, they portray on social media, like, my life is great and everything is great that we're doing. But in reality... Nobody has that perfect cookie cutter feel. There's something happening. And I just always enjoyed that that was on display, like you were saying as well. I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons growing up. So you my, oh, so you're one of you're one of those. Yeah, which I, I find so funny because I I've, actually I should ask my, my parents again because I, I said to them, you know, why are we not allowed to watch? Because there was other programming that I, I personally could see as being something that could be a negative influence, but The Simpsons wasn't. It I was, learned so much. From yeah, Simpsons. she was allowed to watch anything. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but that's that's why like to me it wasn't like it was bad program it was just it, there was a re- even though it's to the extreme in c- certain circumstances it was still real because there was family dynamic that was real um, so yeah that was fascinating to me I remember one thing though and this is from years and years ago there's so many good story story beats but I was a little like look mom and dad look what I did for the family I was like that all the time as a kid yeah. and I remember there's a moment where Lisa comes in I can't remember the, they were all trying to like do their part to help the family or something and Lisa comes in look I took all the slivers of, of soap and put them together to make a new bar and for some reason that one little thing sticks in my head every time I'm in the shower and I'm about to toss the last sliver so this has been what that was probably done 20 years ago or something yes. or more I, I that one thing every shower when I'm about to toss the sliver goes into my head I'm like I'm not gonna throw it out and I stick it onto the bar and I continue so so you're teaching us oh, I'm things. so glad I'm so glad that I served a purpose <laughs> so I do want to ask about your production company too because we love your approach and commitment to supporting projects for featuring roles with people who are usually underrepresented. So tell us about your production company and why you started it. Sure. So I think we're, it was 2015. Uh, so almost six years ago, coming up this summer, I founded, co-founded Paperclip Limited with my, he was already my business partner because I had had a shoe company for five years. <laughs> so no big deal. Story, yeah. which, which goes to my screw it, let's do it philosophy. Um, and I, and it's all because I have this incredible wardrobe and I didn't have any beautiful, comfortable shoes to carry me through my day. And I thought, that's stupid. I can be part of this solution. And so I I didn't know anything about designing shoes, but I found a guy who's brilliant, could run the business. And then we got a designer who could actually do the sketches and we made the shoes in Italy. And I did that for five years and it was great fun and really such a massive learning curve. So, But when I realized the shoe business is a racket, and all of the brands that we love are owned by three other massive conglomerate conglomerates, and mm-hmm. you can't get shelf space on, you know, at Saks or Nordstrom, any of the big box stores, which you really need in order to move the kind of volume you need to make a profit, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. We closed that company and started Paperclip Limited. And we have two rules at Paperclip Limited. One, I started it because I wanted us to be the people who say yes first. It's so hard to get a yes in show business. And I had no formal training as an actress. I was right out of high school and Mm -hmm. a lot of people gave me incredible opportunities. And my job was to meet those opportunities with as much um, uh, energy and excellence as I knew how and then learn along the way. But if I hadn't been given those opportunities, none of it would have happened. Mm -hmm. So I believe in that. I believe in giving people who... Um, have a, a clear vision of where they want to go and what they want to do, um, a chance. Mm-hmm. And the other rule at Paperclip is no assholes allowed because life is too short. And it's, I mean, it, the business is already so hard, but every business is hard. Mm-hmm. And so you only want to, should work with people who you enjoy working with, even yeah. if, even if that person, say a producer comes to you and says, yeah, I can make your movie. I got a million dollars and we can, or $10 million. And you're like, but that guy is an asshole. Don't we're do it. You. No, it we're with you. We call off. it our, our, our no bullshit policy. Yeah. So we, it's the same thing. We, we work with the people we like to work with. And, 
It doesn't matter if you're the Brad Pitt of the business. And by the way, Brad Pitt's an amazing, sweet, sweet person. But of that caliber, it doesn't matter if you're that caliber. We don't want to work with you if you have attitudes. Yeah. So. When we saw that on your website, we were like, yeah. we're going to like her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the cost is too high. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be a, a lot of similarities between you and Lisa Simpson, especially in the line of your charity. And even in your production um, work, you know, you're always giving a platform to these stories that need to be told and voices that are underrepresented. Can you talk more about the work you do? We saw that you were honored by the Human Rights Campaign uh, for a Leadership Award. Uh, Yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, so I got involved with the Human Rights Campaign. I actually got involved with an organization called the American Foundation for uh, Equal Rights, AFER, which was started by Rob Reiner and a man named Chad Griffin. And... um, this was when Proposition 8 in California had passed. And that, and for those who don't know, Proposition 8 said gay marriage is no longer legal in California. It actually had been legal for a short time. And then this proposition was put on the ballot and now it was no longer legal. And um, I, 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 I mean, it's outrageous. Listen to me. I think that we can all coexist peacefully and often quite cordially with different points of view, but I do not believe that you get to deny people certain basic human rights Mm -hmm. just because they're different from you. You don't get to. Mm -hmm. And so I had produced a film by Dustin Lance Black, who had at that time recently won the Oscar for the screenplay for Milk. Mm-hmm. And he had written and wanted to direct this film that he'd wrote called Virginia. And so I put up the money for that. And it was uh, it was a harrowing shoot, actually. But he's a great, great guy. And when Proposition 8 passed, he said, Yardley, I want you to meet a friend of mine. And that was Chad Griffin. And Chad had worked for the Clinton White House. And he's a lawyer. And he already he had his own law firm. And he's a gay man. And he was like, this cannot stand. And so Rob Reiner, who's a, a an enormous activist, mm-hmm. uh, said, I agree with you, it cannot stand. And so I had breakfast with Lance and Chad. And I, honestly, five minutes into that conversation, I was like, I'm in, what do you need? And they're like, well, we need money. And I'm like, I'll give you a shed load of money. <laughs> and so um, I did. And I was I was, I've, I was able to um, significantly impact the overturning of Proposition 8, That's which amazing. was an incredible feeling. And then Chad was um, chosen to then become the president of the Human Rights Campaign. And so when he migrated over there, of course, I have, I'm, I'm such a fan of his. I admire him so much. He's so effective. He has so much energy. He's so organized. I was like, dude, I'm coming. So, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm the sort of person who I'm not a, I don't, I don't particularly actually like my name all over things that I give to, if that's helpful in, in say matching funds or, or rallying other people who might not otherwise, um, Take notice, I'm more than happy to be pimped out that way. Please do so. But in terms of my own personal satisfaction, I feel like I get enough from knowing that I've supported something that is meaningful to me. Well, I think that shows how big a heart you have. And I think that's amazing. So thank you so much for all that you've done. ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. Help protect what matters most with 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. You said that very professionally. I try. (laughs) Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help you make your home smarter and safer. I want to chat about your cooking show. Yes, like, water. because yep. you know I'm. You know we're sure you're you're not busy, so you have to have a cooking show. <laughs> what is that all about? Uh, I love the animation at the beginning, and I love the concept. It's just so much fun. Thank you. Um, so I decided, as we as we've all been um, in various stages of lockdown for a year plus, I'm quite a good cook. Uh, my mother taught me how to cook, and I really like it. And 
I used to do this little two minute videos on my Instagram called Simpsons Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I would talk about little anecdotes from the Simpsons or a little behind the scenes, something. And one of those episodes, I decided I would make a recipe that Homer had served Bart in a Tracy Allman short called Porkified Fish Nuglets, oh. where it was just Bart and Homer because Lisa and Marge were out for the night and Bart was like, what's for dinner? And Homer said, we're having fish sticks. And he's like, I don't want that. So, all right, we're having pork. I don't want that either. And so then Homer just smashed them together and made these porkified fish nuggets. And I was like, I'm going to make that. That's amazing. So I did. I got some ground pork. I got some filet of sole. I decided I was going to chop up the sole and I mushed it all together. Then I breaded them in panko and then I little fried them, you know, in a little pan. And then I had three different sauces. Sauces and I tried them and they actually were not terrible, which is high uh-huh. praise on oil and wire. <laughs> um, and then it's got me thinking that wouldn't it be fun to have a cooking show since production uh, The Simpsons has gone on despite the pandemic. Thank goodness. I'm so grateful um, because, you know, you can record on your own, although mm-hmm. we always record all together like an old radio play. But since the mm-hmm. pandemic, we've actually had to go in individually. Um, And so anyway, I was like, well, I need to, I'm a performer at heart. I'm going to just do this dumb cooking show. I refer to it as dumb entertainment for troubling times. Um, (laughs) It's just what we need. You know, I feel like (laughs) sometimes people go, you're kind of tone deaf, Yardley. And I'm like, come on, it's six minutes just for a laugh or not. And so, and so was what brings you the most joy from oil and water? Is it the comedy element of the show or is it the actual cooking? Well, I, we sort of had to decide that it's, it's not really a cooking show because first of all, I'm cooking with things that you probably would never put together in one dish because the premise is I draw a random sweet ingredient, a random savory ingredient, and then a random thing. Like it's a soup, it's a pandowdy, it's a casserole, it's a thing, right? And then I go to market and I gather the ingredients. I have to throw it all together and make, and then I have to taste it. So for me, two things. One, I really, really want people to know that there are very few fatal mistakes in cooking. Even if what you make is not your favorite thing, there's 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 just very little that is mm. just beyond edible. And that cooking shouldn't be intimidating, that you really can be quite loose with it mm. and still come up with something great. Um, and two, I... I sort of, I, I always joke that I talk to myself a lot as Lisa Simpson. They have her, I lay a lot of pipe, as we say in show business. So um, I'll set things up. I'll tell you what's coming. I'll tell you what's happening as Lisa Simpson. And so I thought, well, I might as well take that skill I've honed for the last 30 plus years and have my own cooking show in my own kitchen. Well, so. we, we love it. It's that's, I, it's amazing. Yeah, so I love that it encapsulates your screw it, let's do it attitude. Like yeah. eh, these may not go together, but whatever, let's just see. And, and also in that same vein, uh, small town dicks. So you're, you're season eight now, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so how long, how long have you been actually recording? How, how many, how many four, long years. Have, four years? Okay. Yeah. So. What is it with murder shows? Why are we all so addicted? Uh, did you see the SNL skit last weekend? They did yeah. the uh, the, yeah, so the murder good. Show? Oh my god, it's hilarious! But what is it? That murder shows and cult shows. Yeah, t- t- tell us <laughs> right? from, from doing it for so so long. Look, you're a huge hit. Your podcast is a huge hit. Why do we get so obsessed? I think it's um, multifold. First of all, the the audiences for murder shows and podcasts is primarily female. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do uh, is that we're often the victims mm-hmm. and there's a kind of voyeuristic there, but for the grace of God, go I, what could I possibly learn? Um, and I also think despite the really important and um, necessary conversation about policing in the United States, I do think that people like to see the good guys win and that's law enforcement and whether, and obviously there's room for change and it needs to happen. But by and large, I can tell you, at least from my own experience that detectives Dan and Dave, who I co-host small town dicks with, by the way, 
Drew. They're identical twins. Oh, I, I know. I was yeah. wanting to ask you, what is it like being with an identical twin? <laughs> well, you know. Um, awesome. Dan and I are engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, Congrats. So thank you. So, you know, I love Dave, but Dan has said that past girlfriends haven't always loved Dave, that they're, that I think he's has felt that maybe they were threatened by the, there's a shorthand between you guys. There's there like a, a real, there's a connection that you have with your twin that my brother, who's a year older than me and I don't have and will never have. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I just fully embraced it. I, I, I realize it's its own thing and I love it. And it, and it really is absolutely necessary to them. It is like for Dan and Dave, it's, it is though it's part of the blood that courses through their veins. You, you're not just, you know, engaged to Dan. You're really engaged to both of them. Yeah. And, and Linda had to realize that really early on that yeah. uh, it's a, it's a two pack. We actually, we laughed cause we traveled a lot and instead of getting separate condos when we were doing the, the we show, when, when it, yeah, we used together. to all just live in a house together and it was, so, it was <laughs> yeah, even funnier. <laughs> can you, can you imagine living in a house with Dave as well? <laughs> I I've actually vacationed with Dave when he hasn't had a girlfriend. Um, and you're like, okay, it's just a different kind of vacation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not a vacation. Third wheeling everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but so uh, so both of them are detectives, and yes. so tell us more about yeah. So uh, actually, Dan is retired now, but Dave is still he's a um, a patrol sergeant in his police department, and but I met Dan in his small town for a Simpsons event, and he was my he was actually my protection. He was my my off duty cop to make sure that you know. I didn't get stabbed in the shoulder like Monica Sellis on the uh, tennis court. So, um, <laughs> wow, graphic. I know. And so I, and I remember thinking it was, I was, I was divorced for the second time, but I had been divorced for six years and I wasn't, and that one had really brought me to my knees. So I was not looking, um, but there was something about Dan. He had this this quiet stillness about him. He had a, a confidence about him and he was very much in charge of the situation without being overbearing in any way. And I just hadn't really structured my life ever for many, many years to let anybody look after me. And the funny thing is, is that when his chief went to the pool of detectives of which there were only nine and said, who wants to guard the celebrity? Nobody raised their hand. <laughs> and then Dan was the most junior detective at the time. Um, and he said, I'll do it. I'll do it. I don't have family, you know. So anyway, <laughs> I started to go up to his town to visit him about every other weekend because I had more time and resources than him as a cop. And then so, when so I would sorry, go... Sorry, Dave, quick question though. When you would go though, at that point, was he realizing that there was some interest or was he totally like dude who's completely oblivious. Oh no, he uh he realized it, but I he always says I loved you first. I'm like that's not true. You know that's not true. <laughs> because I said I love you first and he's like, "Yeah, but I I already loved you. You just said it first." I'm like, "Well, that doesn't count." <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't true. count. Um and when I would go, Dave who lived two blocks away, would in the same development would come over and they would sit on the couch and they would talk about their just every day, right? Their Tuesday. And I'm like, Oh my, that's your Tuesday. I mean, it was so jaw dropping. And I think I, it really gave me this granular look at the big and the small things that all of our um, law enforcement does that they it's, it's all the stuff you never hear about, you know, to the, like Dan has a, we have a wonderful, I mean, it's not wonderful, but we have a really poignant story about Dan encountering um, a suicidal 14-year-old mm. and her parents had called. And you, you you never heard about that. You know, they didn't write mm. about that in the news. And she was fine. Dan sat with her for three hours mm. until, you know, the counselor, because he's a, he's a mandatory reporter, could actually see her and then... Um, but it's little things like that to the murder investigations, like the man who killed both his parents and put them in a freezer for three months. So I think that there is this, 
you want to know that there are people out there who have no I feel no obligation to follow the rules that the rest of us follow. I personally want to know that there's another group of people who's going to say, oh, no, that won't fly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Listen to me. You are I'm going to find justice for the victims and I'm going to put the train Mm -hmm. back on the tracks. So um, that's why I love it. That's why I'm so and I'm also I also my side of the table, like Dan and Dave can talk to those because all of our cases are told by the detectives who investigated the case. Mm -hmm. So Dan and Dave can talk to them like colleagues and like peers. And I am you. If you had the privilege to sit on the side of the table that I'm on, I hope I ask a few of the questions that you might ask as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you listen to Dan and Dave chat about their, you know, their typical day at the office, <laughs> did they often talk about how they felt? Because that's what I, I'm always curious about, like how it affects someone's psyche mm-hmm. and yeah. your emotions. Like you obviously take that stuff home with you because you deeply care about the work you do. It's such a brilliant question, Linda, because from my point of view, it's a question I always ask. I always want to know if you are that person who goes toward the things the rest of us run from. If you are the person who your every day is you encounter somebody at the worst moment of their life, where does that live inside of you? And they all say in various ways that they put it in a box. But the problem is the lock on that box isn't that good. Mm. And so at some point, it leaks out. And whether or not they decide to discuss their day-to-day with their spouse or not, at Mm. some point, it will come back to remind you that there are certain things that you've seen that you can never unsee, things that you've heard that you will never forget. Mm -hmm. It changes you. They all say... Mm. It has changed me. So you said that they tell you that it has changed them, though, their experiences. For doing this podcast, though, for the past four years, how has it changed you? Um, It's funny. I now, we watch a lot of true crime, um, which is funny. It's a little bit like a busman's holiday, I think, for for Dan. But Mm. again, you... Now I'm so fascinated because now I notice all the body language. I'll turn to Dan and go, "Look how his look, which direction his feet are facing. Look how (laughs) you know. Look how he's folded his arms. Um, If they're interrogating (laughs) suspect or something, uh, if and to hear people explain, usually it's suspect interviews and stuff. I'm like, he's lying. I don't believe it. No, no. Do you usually get it right? now, I'm pretty good now. I'm pretty, pretty good. Nice. And okay. what's really fascinating, though, is to watch a, a documentary, for instance, when we watched Making a Murderer with Dan. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you think? And he goes, he said, the guy, like the main guy, he said, that, that guy's dirty. But I also feel as though they haven't, I want to see the whole interview. I don't want to just see five minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because like it. you said, it can shape what you see. All right, well, we want to, we like to wrap up. We do a little speed yeah. round. So we have some questions okay. for you and a little speed round. But this, is a, this has been a lot of fun to really learn more about you and your, and your journey. But now the hard-hitting questions. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Right, they're, they're easy. But So what meal, and, and this is all centric to home, uh, sort of that feeling of home. So what meal makes you feel at home and who cooked it? Oh, um, I cooked it. And I, um, I, during the pandemic, I learned to master pizza crust. So I really love that. But one of my standbys is, uh, we have to, it's very, very good. We make a mean pizza, my friends. You'll have to come. Um, (laughs) to try it. But one of my standby recipes is olive oil braised chickpeas, which uh, come from Joy the Baker. And I make those all the time and I love that. And that makes me feel like I'm at home. All right. What's your uniform at home? Oh, uh, I wear a skirt almost every day. And um, now that I'm, it's funny, it shifted a little bit over the year of this pandemic. Uh, I used to dress like, I used to dress as though I was going to the office. Now I still make sure I get up um you know, put on something nice, but I wear, I still, I dress to greet the day. That's sort of my Mm. philosophy. That's great. That's nice. So what smell reminds you of home? Good or bad? (laughs) Oh, oh, I'm going to say gardenias because I have gardenias outside my kitchen window here. Mm. Oh, nice. 
Love that. What song reminds you of home? What song? Um, I'm good. The first thing that came to mind was Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by, mm. it's originally by Elton John, but Dan always plays the version by George Michael where Elton John then comes on stage. It was a live performance. Nice. Um, but I also have the the sort of the se- deep secret is, is that I have a soft spot in my heart for 80s hair metal. And that's what I work out to. So uh, mm-hmm. good to know. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that, that's a whole new hit for your acting career. A whole new hit. Yeah. What's your perfect Sunday morning at home? Um, I get up. Uh, I'm pretty early riser. I get up. I make my tea, which is usually uh, Earl Grey or Lady Grey, which has a little bit of orange peel in it as well as bergamot. Um, and then I add, uh, it also has in it, uh, nut pods, you know, nut pods, that creamer. Oh, it's stupid. Good. It's one of the best ones that doesn't have like a extra, like a weird chalky taste. And then, um, I will, I will check my email to make sure there are no fires to put out. And then I will knit for an hour if I'm allowed. This makes me want to knit. Learn how to knit, I mean. <laughs> what is your most vivid memory of home? Well, I when I my first thought was when I was a very little girl, like I think I was about six, I remember sneaking down on Christmas morning and in Washington, DC, where I grew up, and there was a huge life-size doll under the tree that my parents had gotten me. And I was so excited. I'm not kidding. The doll was taller than I was. (laughs) And um, I remember um, one more, um, actually my grandparents, my mother's parents lived, my mother grew up in New York City and my grandparents lived in New York City and we used to go visit them. And they lived in a really old pre-war apartment that had a 50 foot hall. And my brother and I would tear down the hall, which I'm sure the people on the fourth floor really loved. (laughs) Um, But that was... That was amazing. I do remember. And I remember watching the fire trucks race down Madison Avenue um, at five o'clock. Oh, wow. At rush hour. Hmm. All right. Just a couple more if you have yeah. time. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So uh, I name three things that are on your bedside table. Um, a, a telescoping back scratcher. Ooh. Which I love. I, I am Linda's telescoping yeah. back scratcher. <laughs> we have a, a grid for my back. Like I just say like C3 and he knows where to go. <laughs> oh my God, that's genius. <laughs> because they, no big you can never like just a little to the left. Just yep. a little to the uh, uh, uh. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, also a, an just, analog clock. Okay. And um, a box of tissue in a ceramic tissue cover. Like a decorative ceramic tissue cover thing. thing. And that's for when you're watching the murder shows. You have the tissue. No, it's for when you're watching HGTV. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. And this last question is inspired by your cooking show, Oil and Water. What are two things in life that you thought would never go together, but in the end work out really well? Oh, fascinating. I don't think I ever would have thought that Detective Dan would consider dating me, an actress. You know, we're so different. We, um, he he has a really quite close-knit family. Um, He grew up with a lot of traditions. I grew up with none. Um, He is much more um, sort of practical and uncomplicated. And I'm not always practical and hugely complicated. Like at the end of the day, we have the same values and we make each other laugh. And I feel like that is so much of it, so much of that chemistry. And I, you know, we both think each other are sexy. So that's important too. Um, But I think if you'd seen us on paper, you would have been like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. Mm -mm." Well, there's that oil Oil and water. water. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love it. that. I, and actually, here are the last three questions are for Lisa. Can we do okay. that? Okay. All right. So okay. we're going to ask Lisa these questions and answer any way you want. Okay. Good luck. <laughs> how old are you? Eight. And uh, when I started watching 34 years ago, how old were you? Eight. So that's the thing. Every time I have a birthday, I'm eight and then I turn eight and we just don't talk about that. Oh, okay. It's great. Eight is great. Oh, Who wow. is your favorite sibling? Uh, Maggie. Duh. I mean, I mean, really, are we still talking about that? Like, <laughs> Although I have to say, I do have a soft spot in my heart for Bart. He's, he's not so bad. He's just so annoying. Honestly. I, I get you with the annoying brother thing. Uh, <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? President. Woohoo. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. Yeah, and- I think so. They already made, um, there's t-shirts, there's stickers, there's vans made shoes that say Lisa for president. So I'm pretty, feel like I'm pretty well dialed in. Everybody else is expecting it. So what <laughs> would you say to all of the earth lovers out there? Um, you are my people. Thank you for um, staying the course. Don't let the naysayers get you down. All we have is Mother Earth, and it is a pleasure to be on this planet with you. And who is your favorite property brother, and which one is cooler? (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't want to, you know, speak ill of the one who's not in the room. Drew, you, of (laughs) course. Thanks for inviting me over. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. Uh, you're an inspiring individual and we look forward to um, game night. S- seeing your lies at game night one day soon. <laughs> Can't wait. You guys, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. I really, and I'm just a massive fan. I cannot, when I tell you this came into my inbox and I said to Dan, you will never guess who I'm going to get to talk to. His head popped off. And that takes a lot. Detective Dan oh. has seen a lot. Thank you Thank both. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. All the best. Bye. So it is funny to me that I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons as a kid. I think it's crazy. Well, at the time, my parents thought that maybe it wasn't appropriate. But <laughs> I when I it. think about it now, it it was fine. I mean, the things that we see in real life are a lot worse than what you'd see in the show there. And Yeah, I can yeah. see how they might have thought certain parts were inappropriate, but But this is when I was like I grew up watching Simpsons. This and... is when I was 17, 18. <laughs> no. You missed out. There, well, I did catch up. I went back and watched everything that I'd missed. I wonder if I have seen every episode. I've definitely seen all the Halloween episodes. That's for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. The specials. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I. W- do you think you would let our kids watch The Simpsons? Yeah. Are you yeah. kidding? Totally. I want to be on The Simpsons. Anybody listening oh from The Simpsons, Yardley, come on, get me in there. We can do a little a special what would your appearance. What would your character be? Smithers is replaced with me. And then I'm the new Mr. Burns sidekick. Mm, yeah, you'd be a good sidekick. Mr. Burns. I used to practice voices listening to The Simpsons, too. Really? Oh, but Bart. Okay, I got to work on it. I haven't done it in a while. Who is that? Uh, no, that's, that was terrible. That was the wrong show. Um, <laughs> let's see. I'm not going to do it I because mean, it's that, really that bad was, on the spot. That was cute, I think. <laughs> okay. I he looks so ridiculous. I'm going to go to Family Drew Guy right now. Drew is still looking naked, so imagine him... Doing these voices sitting in this swivel chair. It's really, really, I'm going to, I'm going to work on it and then I'll do it online. None (laughs) of the voices I just tried to do were anything like any of the characters. I tried Milhouse, Homer, Marge, all bad. Uh, Well, we will make that better for next time. I know one that I can do well that Linda hates. What? Which one? Oh, hi, hi, Linda. So nice to see you. Okay, remember the thing I was saying about Uh, how it's so weird that he's sitting there naked? It's so creepy. Wait, that's also the wrong show again. Damn it. Oh, I thought you were just doing like any voice. I'm mixing up my family guy. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Anyway, we want to highlight some actual talented people. Yes. uh, Our maker moment. At the end of every episode of At Home, we are highlighting an awesome maker that we love. And today's maker is Shu Bertrand. And she is the founder and CEO of Aplot Inc. They design culinary and garden totes. This is like right up my alley. (laughs) That uplift the daily practice of sharing the good things we cook eat, drink, and gift. And bonus, bonus, bonus. 
Their totes are totally sustainable <laughs> and made in San Fran using 100% organic cotton and zero waste in production. Also, Shu is an award-winning industrial designer for 20 years. So that's a lot of experience and amazing, amazing company. So be sure to check out her stuff. Um, I've placed my order and I'll show you when I get it. When I get my goods, um, we'll put her links in the show notes as well. And be sure to hit us up on Instagram, DM us. Uh, we want to hear from you. Are you a maker? We want to highlight more makers. And a huge thank you to our homies, Brandon Angelino, Annalie Bell, Hannah Fan, Courtney Iwanis, Wes Friend, Chris Cobain, Jessica Bryant-Harvey, and Nicole Schachter. Our theme music for At Home is by Victoria Shaw and Chad Carlson. And music is composed and produced by Rick Russo. Thank you so much for listening. And if you do enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us. Always rate us. We love you rating and commenting. Yeah, we actually like your feedback. And to you, thank you. Thank you, love you. Love you. Yeah, it feels like home. Dun, 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 dun. ADT <laughs> now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT is awesome and believes that the smarter the home, the safer the security. I can't wait to see what they do next. They're going to put Google Nest doorbells on the moon. <laughs> da, da. Actually, I'd like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with our Google Nest doorbell. I do love how when we're out at dinner, we can see exactly what's going on at the front door. And we can control our ADT smart devices like lights, locks, the security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. Mm-hmm. All you have to say is, hey, Google, to get started. Well, I think it's great for people to help protect what matters most with all of this. Plus, 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. Hey, Google. <laughs>